The Y Curve with Phil Dobby and Roger Hearing. Migrants in small boats crossing the channel. The Prime Minister says it's his key priority to stop them. Yet the measures so far declare them illegal, send them to Rwanda, house them on barges. All seems desperate, impractical, cruel and probably against international law. But between the anger on one side at foreigners coming here and taking our jobs and benefits and the fury on the other at penal policies towards people who've lost everything and just want a better life, is there a rational and compassionate way to deal with migration? Are there things that can be done to stop people paying smugglers to risk their lives on the sea without at the same time putting an intolerable burden on the country's resources? Are there any policies on migration that meet the criteria of being legal, humane, practicable and effective? That's the subject of today's Y Curve brought to you by Wigmore Associates. The Y Curve. So there are lots of questions about this, aren't there? Including why now are we seeing all of a sudden so many more people coming across the channel on boats? What's, yeah. What is the driving force well, for Well, there's that? all kinds of things. That's weather. There's to do with, with if they can get to the French the coast. Yeah, no, all this stuff. I mean, it's all there. <laughs> okay. Well, but even though, you know, even in winter, you know, it's yeah, all Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but they find ways of doing it. But, but all these factors are in there. Plus, of course, what's going on in other places that drives them mm. into this situation. But the big thing, and people scratch their heads about is, you know, okay, we may find, some of us may find some of what the government is proposing not to be exactly um, tasteful in terms of, of, of matching our concerns about the way people uh, are being handled, but also is it illegal? There's all sorts of issues with it. And is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? I mean, yeah. they can't even is it just process. Dog I mean, you've got to process people. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the idea, isn't it? Well, we don't have to process them. If they yeah, arrive, if they, they don't need out. processing, we just chuck them out. But, and that goes over this big problem that we've got this just this massive backlog which just keeps on getting yeah, worse. Yeah, yeah, but also then, you know, they are breaking international law, potentially. They, they kind of admit it themselves. See, is there a way? The big question is, is there something that isn't what they're doing, potentially, but is actually practicable, is actually what it would work? I mean, what is the actual scale? Is there a problem anyway? I mean, this mm. is one of the things. Well, you, do we want migrants? I think we do want migrants, don't we? The question is, what sort of migrants do we want? Mm. How many? How uh, far should we process them? What yeah. will be the barriers, if any, to stop them coming over? I mean, all these things. But there must... I think, be something that can be done that isn't, well, isn't either inhumane or illegal. I just wonder how much of what the government is saying. Do they actually believe themselves? Mm. Like, are they? Are we going to have a, bo- a barge uh, somewhere on the Solent filled with... Uh, well, no, it's in Weymouth, I think, is what, the plan. Oh, okay. yeah. I mean, down in I mean, Dorset. it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and the, even the local MP, a very noted uh, supporter of the government, objects to that. I mean, nobody wants... I mean, none of this looks good, mm. I think, although given that we've got elections coming around the corner, maybe Maybe it looks good to enough people. But how for quickly the can to do you it? do that? How quickly do you convert a boat into becoming a detention centre? And why a boat? You know, I mean, it's all, all of this stuff. Is it just because we want to go back to Dickensian England, where no. you know we had prison uh, uh, hulks, you know, on the Thames? You know, no, it's because we... you can't get demonstrators protesting outside a boat. Well, maybe that's it. But you yeah. can outside hotels, as we have seen in recent weeks. So lots of questions. Now, look, if you want to protect your wealth, just very quickly before we talk more about this, and importantly, if you want to build on your wealth, whether it's getting the most tax-efficient outcome or planning your cash flow or investing spare cash, sorting out your inheritance arrangements, or maybe figuring out what to do if you become the beneficiary of, uh, of an inheritance. Or something we all need to do, of course, is to plan, uh, planning for our retirement. In particular, the people who can help you with that are Wigmore Associates. Give them a call, see how they can help. They are a supporter of this podcast. Go to Wigmore Associates, wigmore-associates.co.uk, or give them a call on 0207 224 That's 
below and they'll be happy to help. And apart from looking after our future income, of course, we also have to look after what's going on in the country in terms of its makeup and mm. people coming in. And that brings us very much to the subject of migration. And joining us, I'm very pleased to talk about this, is Madeleine Sumption, the director of the Migration Observatory at Oxford University, which provides evidence-based analysis of migration in the UK. Madeleine, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I suppose that the best way to sort of open this is to say that the discussion, the, the political discussion about it seems in many ways uh, to many people on both sides to be quite extreme, to be perhaps uh, shadowing other issues often uh, that, that, that come out in the way of talking about migration. But uh, perhaps the key thing is, is migration, as we are at the moment, a problem for the UK? Well, I think um, people's view on that will depend quite a lot what kind of migration um, you're talking about. Now, overall, you know, the, the UK um, is had around uh, a million people coming last year through various different legal routes, work, study, international students, uh, making up the, the majority of of those, plus, of course, people coming from Ukraine. And um, in you know, most cases, that, that kind of migration has has generally been actually in the last few years reasonably uncontroversial. The economic impacts tend to be um, relatively small, probably positive. These days, of course, where people use the word migration, they're often talking about a very specific subset of overall migration, which is people coming to the UK to claim asylum because the numbers of people um, who, who are doing that have gone up a fair amount in the last uh, couple of years. Some of At least well, the people the government has, has now put through as being illegal, in inverted commas, migrants. That, that's how they are. I mean, that is, they are now but of course you know in the days of the eu we people were complaining about people coming from for example we had a lot of people come from romania for example for many years and from and from poland so during the eu uh years uh people were complaining about those people taking their jobs so i mean we've moved on from that now i guess now they're not coming let's move to worrying about asylum seekers yeah i mean the issues that are salient in the public debate do change a lot over time it is interesting to me how little focus there is currently on on legal migration it was the biggest single issue um, in you know in the minds of many voters for for quite a few years um, around 20. 15, 16. Um, and actually now, if you ask when when they have opinion polls and they ask people, you know, what are the top issues facing the UK? Um, people tend not to say migration in the way that, that they used to. Um, but of course, we do have this, um, you know, there's a lot of political focus and the, the government feels that it's under uh, a lot of pressure uh, to resolve this very specific issue about people crossing in small boats. And how many are we talking about? I mean, you, you talked about a million legally coming into this country uh, within the year. What number are coming across in boats having to be housed in hostels or possibly now even barges or potentially going to be deported to Rwanda? What are the sort of numbers we're talking about there? Last year in 2022, there were around 46,000 uh, people who crossed the channel in uh, in small boats. Uh, the number of people who claimed asylum is actually larger than that. So um, less than half of people who claimed asylum last year in, in the UK were estimated to have come in a small boat. Um, so that number is, is around, there were around 75,000 asylum asylum applications that covered 89,000 people, which is up. I mean, that's big compared to the numbers that the UK was used to seeing, um, you know, throughout most of the sort of late 2000s and, and 2010s. But it's not that big an international comparison if you look at it. So, yeah, because in 2019, uh, the figures I've got here, and you might uh, from the Home Office, who you think knows, knows about this sort of thing, uh, 45,000 in 2019 and then 89,000 last year. So, I mean, there's obviously a bit of a, a delay 
perhaps because of COVID. But I mean, that's that, even though they, you know, as you say, they're relatively small numbers on an international scale. That's quite a big increase, though, isn't it? So why why have we seen it step up so much? It is a big increase. I mean, the UK has <clears throat> um, has typically been a country that does not get many asylum applications, um, and that was partly because it was quite difficult to get here. Now, one of the things that's changed is that the the small boats route um, has become a thing in a way that it wasn't in in the past. Um, and there there's a fair amount of sort of speculation about exactly why that why that is. I think partly, um, you know, and some of it, for example, is um, due to more effective enforcement um, on the other routes that people used to take, um, like, for example, people crossing in um, in lorries. There's been a lot more enforcement around the the freight terminals in northern France. Um, so that may have been sort of one of the reasons people started crossing in, in small boats. But I think more generally, people um, that an industry has grown up around it, and people have just realised that the channel isn't the barrier that that they thought it was. And so that's one of the factors. The fact that it has become slightly easier to get to the UK um, has it, is probably one of the factors increasing the total number of asylum applications. Although, of course, we have to remember that a lot of people, small majority, are not actually arriving by uh, by small boat at all. And sort of in the international context, these numbers um, uh, for a large country, you know, with a population of uh, 60, 70 million, uh, uh, you know, are not out of line with what uh, other but high the, countries receive. The, the, the pub conversation, of course, which is not always necessarily the most informed uh, source of source of Depends information, on the pub, but yes, uh, <laughs> would, would say, well, you know, there's more coming across because the French aren't policing uh, those crossings as much as perhaps they used to because we're not in the EU anymore. Again, there is some speculation about what is the role of, of Brexit and people leaving. Some people have argued that, um, that the fact that we're not part of the EU's uh, shared asylum arrangements anymore has meant that people are more keen to come here. Um, I think those... Um, you know, I don't see. It's really difficult to know the impact. You know, there may have been some impact of of Brexit increasing the numbers, but um, uh, but there isn't really any evidence um, to say how big that impact is if it exists. The, the other the point, yeah, I was ahead. just to say the other aspect of that pub conversation, that national one, is. Why would people want to come to the UK specifically? Because they've obviously reached France, they've reached Europe by the fact of where they are, and and, and that is a, a sta- they're, they're stable place. in a to- safe country. Yes, so, and, yeah. and as country one presumes where they could they could prosper much in the same way that they could in the UK. Yeah, no, that's and interestingly, actually, the UK. It's you know, it's not the first safe country that uh, the most people pass through. Uh, for some people, it's not even the last because um, some people then go ahead, go on to Ireland and claim asylum there. By the common travel area, but um, uh, but I, I th- yeah, there's a there's a big debate about why um, why people come to the UK. Obviously, most people don't. So most uh, people who claim asylum who make it to the European continent cl- claim in EU countries, um, and then uh, some you know a smallish percentage of them come on to the UK. Often there's they have some specific reason that they want to be in the UK. So sometimes they may have um, family members or friends here. Maybe that they only speak English. Um, they're you know various or they have sort of an idea about the reputation of the UK as a welcoming and uh, and tolerant place. So there there are various different reasons. There isn't. It's interesting that there isn't an obligation. There's no legal obligation on people to claim in one country or another. Um, so often this comes down to um, the question about what is the overall responsibility of different countries, the UK, France, European countries, non-European countries, um, to deal with asylum seekers. And I think one of the reasons that this gets a 
tricky the debates about this get uh, quite politicized and tricky is that the global you know asylum system doesn't actually say that much about how how responsibility should be shared across countries it just sets out responsibilities once someone's actually arrived well i wanted to come on to the legal basis because one of the criteria for trying to as we are in this podcast trying to work ways forward is that it has to be whatever measure is introduced if any has to be legal and the government themselves have acknowledged that that some of the latest legislation may not be uh, conducive to, to international law. What are the obligations as we sit with current law as it is, international law, on the UK government? What what can they do? What are they not allowed to do in terms of people coming across in this way? So I should give the caveat here that I'm, I'm not an immigration lawyer and the, the legal area is actually really um, complex. Um, the main uh, legal obligations that we have, so we have the Refugee Convention, um, which does a lot of things, but the most important thing arguably that it does is effectively say once someone has arrived um, on your territory and claims asylum, um, you cannot uh, return them to a country where they would be at risk. Um, uh, so if someone's from, uh, you know, if someone shows up from Afghanistan, and you can't return them, broadly speaking, to, to Afghanistan. Um, so um, that's and there then there are lots of other obligations around how people should be should be treated um, once they're here. But that's that's the key one. You then separately have um, human rights legislation, um, which um, covers a whole host of um, things, including people's right to um, to family life, um, and it uh, you know covers aspects around um, around detention and and removal. Um, and those things, um, you know, they create some constraints on what the government can do. I think in some ways, I actually feel that sometimes in our debate, the legal constraints are get more attention than they um uh, than they really deserve, in the sense that um, you know the reason that the UK government um is not returning Afghans to Afghanistan is probably not because it signed the Refugee Convention, um, but because it doesn't think that it should send Afghans back to Afghanistan. Um, and so I think it's sometimes this is framed as sort of what's the government allowed to do and what's it not allowed to do, rather than just, you know, what's a good idea? What would what would people support? And um, sometimes you don't get to tremendously different answers, actually, when you so go through the You're process. saying there's a bit of a conscience there, then, is that, I mean, and which would sort of suggest that a lot of the rhetoric we're hearing might be uh, sort of pol- political rather than, you know, it, it's, it's sending a message that they think the voter wants to hear rather than actually what they intend to do. Because if you look at the country where, you know, for those small boat arrivals, which obviously are very different to what we were seeing before Brexit and before we saw these these arrivals, it's Iran, it's Iraq, it's Eritrea, it's Syria, it's Afghanistan, Sudan. Uh, and they, you know, you, you assume they are coming by boat because of a of a lack of choice, and do we want to send people back to to any of those places? I dare say not. And some people might say, well, we don't need to send them back there. If they came from France, we should just send them back to France, which is sort of like getting back to the you know the the Australian yeah. way of turn back the boats. It doesn't matter where you came from; we'll just send you uh, back where you uh, where you set sail from. Uh, but legally, we can't do that. Can uh, we? Legally, we can't send people back to France. Yeah. Well, you would need France. not if they come from Iraq, for example. Um, well, you would need um, you would need France to agree to take them back. So, under you know, legally, un- when we were part of um, the EU, there was um, there was a sort of asylum arrangement called the, uh, the Dublin Accord, which. Um, which effectively means that someone um, could, you know, someone from Iraq or Afghanistan or any other country where, you know, they would be at risk if they were returned to those uh, to those countries, could 
be returned to France and asked to claim asylum there instead of, say, the UK. Um, so that agreement existed until the end of 2020. Now, it wasn't um, as effective as you might expect it to be um, for various logistical reasons. Actually, a lot of um, uh, it, it was more difficult than people realised uh, to, to transfer people um, from one country to another. But at least in theory, it was possible and it was legal to to do that. So there are legal options um, for people to uh, to be returned to to other countries so let the, drawing this, some of this to to in, in generality we have say around eighty thousand people potentially coming in each year in this kind of way the government then has to house them or does house them in some form while it processes and this is the current system and if they have an application for asylum that is then considered and they may or may not stay now the argument the political argument has but these people are a burden they take our benefits they uh, cost the taxpayer how much of that is true well there are specific issues at the moment about the um, asylum accommodation because um, when, as you outlined, when people arrive, they tend to receive accommodation. The main reason for that is that they are not allowed to work while they are waiting for their asylum claim. Now, if the asylum claim was made in sort of you know three to six months, like it is in many other countries, um, that wouldn't necessarily matter so much. Um, you know, if people, if someone's a refugee coming. Um, from a, a war-torn country after a quite traumatic journey, you wouldn't necessarily expect them to hop into work the next day anyway. Um, but um, by the time you're, you know, when you have a, a backlog as large as the UK um, does, you know, more than a hundred thousand people waiting for uh, for a decision on their initial application, um, then you start to um, to get into trouble because people are waiting, you know, often typically over a year, sometimes two or even three years to get um, their decision, which means that they can't then move into work and start supporting themselves. So what that means, and, and that effectively, you know, we can discuss it in more, more detail, but but the reason for that effectively, there, there are not, not enough decisions are being made on asylum claims in the UK. That is one of the main causes. That together with the increase in the number of people applying has um, has meant that the government needs to find housing for, uh, for a larger number of people, which of course creates a cost. Interestingly, under the, the legislation that um, is currently going through Parliament, the numbers of people that the state would need to support um, could, you know, under many of the reasonable, plausible scenarios, could actually go up quite a lot um, because you would have people who would come in and instead of making, the government would no longer make a decision on their claim under the proposals. Um, but, um, and so they couldn't remove them to their countries of origin without making a decision. Um, if they can't move them to other, remove them to other third countries, which many uh, analysts think that they won't be able to, they would still be left in the UK in this long-term limbo where they couldn't work. And so that could, in theory, obviously, it's very difficult to predict the exact impacts, but but one plausible scenario is that it would lead to a very significant increase in the number of people needing accommodation and support. Because yeah. of the delays in processing. And those numbers are, are shocking, aren't they? So I've got these from your, from your website. So uh, I hope I'm not misconstruing them. But from the 1st of January 2021 to the 30th of September 2022, 121,564 asylum applications, 83 have been deemed inadmissible. That doesn't mean that the the rest uh, are okay. It just means they haven't got around to them. 21 have been removed. 
out of 121,564. So that is less than 0.02%. So uh, uh, there's plenty of room for improvement there, isn't there? So it's just lack but of resources, essentially, Madeline, in, in terms of doing And that. that is just over that period. I mean, that is adding to the waiting list of what went before. Well, so that those specific um, statistics that you've cited are about, it, it's about a procedure that the government introduced that was designed um, to assess people when they came in. Let's say they came in via... Um, a safe country. It was designed to assess them and say, okay, well, we believe that you have connections in, say, France or Belgium, um, and therefore your claim should be assessed over there. Um, and not everyone went through that 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 specific assessment. Um, but what those statistics, I think, show um, is that those are, that there there would be different numbers that you need to look at. No, kind of what is the total number of undecided um, claims? But what those figures show is that um, it's very difficult to remove someone. Who who's made an asylum claim to another country uh, asking basically effectively asking that country to take uh, to take responsibility for their asylum claim instead um, unless you have uh, agreements in place with those countries that that will allow you to do it and because the UK doesn't currently have those agreements that uh, one exception is Rwanda which we can talk about that isn't yet operational but without those agreements with with third countries it's just very difficult to even if someone does have a connection there um, to, to to get that country to take responsibility for for the claim. So that's why few people have been removed. But those removals numbers, the 21 people, um, that doesn't reflect removals of of anyone who has claimed asylum and then potentially been been turned down. Those numbers would be higher. So doesn't common sense suggest then that, you know, the Brexit aside, uh, the continent of, of Europe still exists, we're still part of it, that uh, that you know, and it, it is a Europe-wide issue. Well, it's a worldwide issue, but Europe has, by its you know, nature of its geography, its its proximity to to war zones that it needs to contend with. Um, that there would, would be a Europe-wide solution. That the, the the countries within Europe would all say, well, okay, we've got this many people coming into the country. Some people have German connections. Some people have British family connections. We need to, if they are genuine refugees, it's obvious those with British connections find their way to Britain. Uh, let's let's chalk up, let's divvy up, you know, the responsibility across the whole of Europe so that no one country is bearing the brunt of all of this. I mean, wouldn't that make sense? Obviously, the downside of that is that Britain would probably end up having to take yeah, more refugees. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a good question. So, so that sounds like a sensible approach. Um, mm, sorry for bringing you, that up. No, well, yes, no, it's, no. It's, um, it's no, basically no, no. a first, uh, Madeline, but, 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 so let's treasure it. But yeah, what, what's your sort of thoughts well, about it? So, so various. I mean, and there, there are there have been a number of different proposals along these lines. Sometimes Europe wide um, that were in fact debated within the EU. Sometimes you know some scholars have, have made similar arguments, but at a global global level, saying you know rather than wait till people arrive through dangerous routes onto the territory, why not just have a system where we agree what the responsibility is for each country, and then you know subject to things like family ties, people will be sort of allocated across across countries, and so you wouldn't have anyone um, without somewhere to go. Um, I think that the challenge for that is um, is partly just political, and it's so difficult to agree, um, for countries to agree on what their fair share actually is. And you get these debates. So, for example, um, you know, should a wealthy country be able to pay a poorer country to take more refugees for it? Um, 
uh, and or you know can you um, can you say that your fair share for taking refugees is lower if you provide a lot of development aid, which is an argument that the UK has made. When we saw this attempt um, a few years ago within the EU um, to try and create a formula effectively for allocating refugees across countries, um, it was it was incredibly divisive, and they ended up not being able to agree because there were countries that said no, we simply are not um, going to increase our um, the number of, of refugees that um, that we take. So I think, in in theory, those kinds of solutions are there, and I think the sort of utopian vision might well involve one of those. The the political um, practicalities of getting there, I think, are um, quite difficult. What about another sensible solution? Two in one podcast is quite something. But what if you had an office, say, British government office in Songat or Calais or wherever mm-hmm. it is, and you said, "There we are. Anyone who wants to come to claim asylum, you come in here." We can begin the process. We can even then transport you safely across so that these um, you know, barges or whatever it is effectively become the places where these people go. But it's all within the system, not, not picking people up off beaches, not forcing them to, to go in small boats in bad weather. And we simply assess them at whatever rate we can, but within a, a closed government-sponsored system. Wouldn't that be a better way forward, a more humane one at least? Well, the government, I'm sure, would say, well, that's just going to encourage people. It'll, but we're only talking about 80,000. It's not massive, massive enough. But they might say, well, that'll make it half a million. I well, guess. or millions and millions, as mm. I think was said in the House of Commons the other day. But realistically, that is handleable, isn't it, Marin Adler? Yeah, so... I get well, yeah, what we're getting into here is the debate about how do you how can you substitute safe routes for the dangerous routes that people are taking, and we do have evidence actually that that say if there are safe legal routes um, that are available to people, um, they do take them. So you, in Ukraine, for example, with the Ukraine crisis, we have a visa scheme. People can sort of do roughly what you are outlining. So they can they could be in France or in any other country. They can um, they can apply for um, for the visa. The visa gets granted, and they travel safely to. Um, to the UK, um, and one consequence of that, we don't. There are no Ukrainians crossing the Channel on small boats because they can get a visa here, and, and people prefer to do that. Um, now we've that scheme is very big, um, so we've had around one hundred and seventy thousand people so far who've entered on one of the Ukraine scheme um, visas. Um, so obviously, it's difficult to imagine doing that for all of the nationalities of, of people crossing the um, crossing the Channel. I, I think the um, there are. I mean, a number of organisations, individuals have proposed something along the lines that you're outlining where people would um, ha- make an application in France or perhaps somewhere else um, and and then it would be assessed before they arrive. I think the, um, the the issues that you would need to work out in that kind of scheme are um, well firstly how you know is it going to still take you know two years to decide their claim and if so what happens done in the meantime and how do France feel about all these people sort of waiting in, in the territory but let's imagine that you could do it really efficiently and that the decision making was was fast I think probably the biggest question you get to next is is there a cap on the number of people um, do you sort of just try it and see how many people you get um, if there's a cap then what happens well firstly are there any selection criteria so because the, the currently refugees under the asylum system there's no selection criteria you, you meet the threshold um, of you know being someone who is genuinely in fear of, of, of persecution in their country of origin, or you don't. Um, but we don't say, well, we'll take the people who um, have higher levels of skills or um, you know, meet certain criteria. So, and then if you have selection criteria and a cap, you then need to ask, okay, what happens to the people who are unsuccessful? And is there a risk that then those people simply cross through the, uh, through the irregular means? I think if you want to have... Um, 
a higher degree of substitution. So really targeting the, the types of people who would otherwise have crossed um, uh, through dangerous routes. Um, probably, you know, there isn't a perfect way of doing it, but probably the groups that you want to be looking at are people who have some really specific reason to be in the UK, like, um, uh, you know, like people with, with family connections there. Yeah. So, what about the the, the contribution then that that you know that these asylum seekers make if they are found that they uh, that meet the criteria, they stay in the country. Obviously, they're not doing a great deal for that two years while they're uh, trapped in a hotel room watching Pointless every day. But once they've gone through that phase and they're out in the community, I mean, are we do we find that they are a drain on the economy or are they contributing to the economy? What's the, what is their net worth? Is as, there even an argument in in what is a you know pretty tight labour? market for letting them work from 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 day one if they want to. Yeah, so in terms of the, the overall economic contribution, I haven't seen this quantified in terms of like a net benefit of a particular group. And to be honest, sometimes I find those exercises slightly spurious anyway. Um, I think, you know, realistically, it's going to vary, um, vary a lot. If you th- talk, you know, forget about the, the, you know, the social contributions and people's kind of, uh, you know, membership of society and culture are very difficult to quantify. So I'm not going to get into that. But if you think about the kid that the economics of it. Um, uh, the, one of the key questions is um, whether people work and what kind of jobs they do. Um, and one in general, what we see for refugees, obviously many refugees do end up working. Um, they tend to struggle more in the labour market than um uh, than people who come for other reasons like work or family, uh, which makes sense, right? That they, they didn't come, you know, people who come for work or family have a, you know, they have support here. They have specific reasons for being here. They may have been, you know, had a job lined up. Um, that obviously tends not to be the case with with refugees who haven't left, uh, haven't left voluntarily. So I, I think it's not, you know, you, the reason <laughs> the reason to have policy towards refugees is it's humanitarian. It's not because there's some kind of, um, you know, massive hidden economic benefit. Although obviously many people will end up entering the labour market and uh, and contributing economically. But I mean, that economic argument is given against uh, refugees fairly often, isn't it? That we, you know, people aren't escaping persecution. They're coming here as economic migrants. Well, the, the, the Albanian young men from Albania, yeah. which was a, was a recently yeah. quoted example. But but if they are coming to work, they presumably come here in order to try and prosper, they will earn money and potentially pay taxes. And although I take on board what you were saying, Madeline, about not necessarily uh, some of them uh, that easily at the beginning, but nevertheless, they are an economic contribution. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to to separate out. I think the debate is quite different when we're talking about people who um, who are recognised um, to be refugees and who eventually re- will receive refugee status. So, you know, the vast majority of people from Syria or Afghanistan, for example, um, and people from a group like, for example, Albanian men, uh, not Albanian women, I'd interest to, um, who actually often, uh, you know, typically do get asylum in the UK. But um, if you're looking at Albanian men, you know, the large majority of those claims um, are not expected to be successful. Um, and I think that's, you know, the sort of analysis you want to do about that group is, is quite different. I wouldn't necessarily suggest we lump them all in together. There, I think, you know, the question is, yes, is there an economic benefit from um, irregular migration of people um, coming to do work who don't have a valid asylum claim? Um, you know, there may well be. And actually, there's some <laughs> there's some evidence from the um, from the US that, uh, you know, where there have been some studies on that suggest that um, unauthorized migrants there um, could have substantial economic benefits. I, I don't know that that necessarily is an argument for, you know, I think that the sort of arguments against irregular migration 
integration are often in principle ones sort of protecting the integrity of the system. Um, so I think there's a legitimate position for people to say that they don't want it to happen, even if it were to have economic benefits. Well, they're not taking jobs from other people. I mean, that's one of the other things that comes in. They say, well, you know, they come over here, they take our jobs. Is there much evidence that that's true? Well, so we don't. Um, we, there's a lot of evidence on the impacts of migration overall in the labour market. Um, there tends not to be evidence on specific groups, so I can't tell you what the economic impact of, um, you know, Albanian men on the labour market would be. For example, except that it's likely to be very, very small. Um, overall, you know, when there have been studies looking at, for example, people coming from um, EU countries over the last 15 years under free movement rules. Um, and then, you know, these countries, there have been studies in the UK and other countries. One of the the quite consistent results that comes out of those studies is that the impacts are actually much smaller than people um, than people expect. So intuitively, people feel like, well, if there are more people coming into the labour market then um, and they get jobs, then that means there aren't jobs for other people. Um, that... Um, uh, it, it, that's an argument that's, that's known as the lump of labor fallacy, um, that there's some the kind of fixed number of jobs in, in the economy. And what these studies over time have shown is that that doesn't really tend to be true. Actually, the, you know, the migration um, uh, increases the number of people looking for jobs, increases the number of jobs, and those two net out. And basically, your total impact is often yeah. pretty close to zero. And the moment well, we well, know there are actually a lot, there's a lot more jobs available than there are people anyway. So. Yeah, and all of those people, obviously, unless they're, they're sort of sh- shipping all the money back home, mm. are, are consumers as well. So, I mean, they add to the... Yes, there's a net uh, effect of positive in that sense. But, I mean, when we had... Uh, I mean, that, that that we are getting back away from the asylum seeker issue, back to where we were with the EU, where... For example, uh, Romania, we did see a lot of people and they were escaping, you know, corruption in Romania. But uh, a a large chunk of that, I saw a survey from the uh, UK Collaborative Centre for Housing Evidence. They asked Romanians why, this is in 2021, why they'd migrated to the UK. Uh, Most did say it was escaping corruption, but also they said it was for professional development. You know, they were were here for a career, uh, basically. And yet, you know, Romania, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a developed country. It's 47th in the world in terms of uh, GDP. Uh, but of course, there was a free travel arrangement with the EU. So uh, so they left in their droves and uh, they came here. Uh, so we've sort of stopped that happening now. And we're paying the price for that because we haven't got enough people perhaps to do the work that Romanians uh, w- were doing. Uh, it's very difficult to, to find builders, for example. Well, Polish builders, of course. Is yeah, Polish builders, exactly, as well. So, so yeah, I mean... I'll, but it's I take your point though it's not right to bridge that gap is it by saying well okay let's get irregular arrivals to do it we just need to have a, a more sensible uh, approach to migration generally yeah there's a big debate about the impact of ending free movement on the labor market um and this is something I've spent a fair amount of time um looking into I, I think st- again counterintuitively the the impacts might not be um as big as people would imagine um in that um, you know so we, we we do see that um there's more restrictive immigration uh, rules, particularly into when we're talking about low-wage jobs, things like food processing or hospitality, uh, which were jobs that a lot of EU migrants did. Um, those more restrictive rules seem to be one factor that's contributing to, to labour shortages. They're, they're not the only one. Um, however, it's not always the case, um, just as you know, the lump of, lump of labour fallacy that I mentioned earlier suggests that you know, every new person um, coming in doesn't, it, it doesn't mean you take away one job from someone in the population. You sort of have the flip side of, the, of that with vacancies. Just because there's a vacancy, it doesn't mean you need to have someone come into the country to, to fill it. In practice, what ends up happening 
is just um, if you have more migration into low-wage jobs, sectors that use low-wage workers expand. So you might end up with a bigger hospitality sector uh, or a bigger food processing sector. Economists tend not to mind that much what the size of different sectors is, though. So I think you know if you have a more restrictive regime in sort of ten years' time, looking back at what the impact of that will have been, it will probably just mean a slightly different composition of the UK economy, but not necessarily a, a fundamentally different picture in terms of. You know our prosperity. Well, I think, but, I think but inflation is being driven by the mm. service sector, and a lot of that is being driven by jobs, of course, isn't it? So that can be lack of available people in that sector. I think. I mean, one of the things that comes out from this is, you know, we can take the economic arguments back and forth, but but really, what's a lot of what's lying under this, in political terms at least, is an attitudinal thing, a, almost a cultural thing, a fear of them coming over here. You know, you hear foreign languages on the tube or on the bus. You, the concern that there is, which which is cultural, of being replaced almost, people being, you know, we, we, we now have foreigners living in our street. How far, Madeleine, is that a problem with, with, with immigration, that the people just don't want to have people coming in who aren't like them? Yeah, it's really difficult to... Um to answer that question, but you know, certainly in any kind of quantitative way, you know, when we talk about the impact of jobs, I can say, well, here's the evidence, and does it does it in fact affect the labour market? Yes or no? Here, are the, whereas when you're looking at how migration affects culture, everyone's idea of how you should measure culture and you know what matters and what doesn't uh, will be very different. Um, so I think it's hard to sort of um, pronounce confidently on that issue. One thing we do we have seen over the last. Um, eight years or so, um, really since around the time of the referendum, is that actually public attitudes towards immigration have become um, have become more positive. And so you see fewer people saying that immigration is a big problem facing the country. Um, and then you also see slightly more people saying um, that they think um, there are positive economic uh, or cultural impacts as a result of, of immigration. And that's been something that's happened steadily and quite consistently um, for several years now, which I think is very it's interesting. interesting. You wouldn't, the politics wouldn't lead you to think that at all. No, because I, I, I think they're looking at. Uh, I, I'm just reliving Australia, life in Australia yeah. in uh, in the 1990s, where you know, turn back the boats was the phrase yeah. uh, during the Howard government. But go, going, you know, to the original question about whether you know the approach that's being taken by the government, in particular, for example, sending people over to Rwanda. I mean, if it happens, is it legal? Is it humane? Is it practicable? And is it going to be effective? Does it does it tick any of those boxes, do you think? So on the question of whether it's legal, this is something that's going through the courts um, at the moment. And I think it, um, you know, at least the immigration lawyers tell me it may well turn out to um, to be legal, at least at this at this stage. There would be when people actually start moving, there would be further um, there will probably be further challenges that um, that could be made and then it, it could be revisited. Um, I think. Um, the the question about you know will it will it be effective? I mean, the, so okay, what has the government said it's for? Well, the sort of main aim of the policy, um, as far as the sort of government policy statements lay out, is that it's um, is basically designed to deter people from coming to the UK. So the idea is that they see that they might be removed to Rwanda um, with no chance of being um, returned to to the UK, and therefore will decide that they would rather stay in in France or some other safe country. Um, now. The um, in theory, this sounds quite plausible. Um, the issue is that the 
the past evidence does not actually suggest that asylum policies, you know, policies on how you treat people after they arrive, it doesn't suggest that they have really, um, that they have particularly big impacts on on people's decisions about where to go. Um, and part of the reason for that is that people don't necessarily actually know what the policies are that face them. The information they have is often really inaccurate. Um, there are all sorts of rumours, misinformation um, spread by, you know, people knowingly or unknowingly. Um, and sometimes people are actually quite shocked when they arrive in the country of destination and, and discover what policies face them. And then even if they do know that there's a chance they'll be removed to Rwanda, um, they they may feel that it's just effectively one more risk along a journey that, you know, what's often been a quite long and traumatic journey that they've already taken that involved many, many risks. Um, so I think, you know, obviously these policies are slightly, um, they're slightly more extreme than what um, other EU countries are doing. So maybe the impact would be more than we've seen in in those other countries. Um, but certainly what's interesting, I think, about this bill is there's a sort of gamble inherent in the, in the, the current asylum proposals, um, which is that that, that it will have the promised deterrent effect because if it doesn't, then it actually stores up. If you still, if you keep having the same number of people arriving in small boats and all subject to these provisions, it stores up quite a lot of um, operational difficulties for um, for the UK working out what to to do with uh, with everyone who. It, I mean, it does feel like we are being swamped and we are having immense difficulty swamped coping. That's a dangerous well, word. Well, yeah, maybe <laughs> I, know, I use it advisedly, but with the, certainly that we are having difficulty. Uh, uh, in, in terms of coping with the numbers, so for for whatever reason, we just are not yeah. processing them fast enough. And the more that we see arriving, if that is going to be the case, and that's the question: Are we going to see this continuing to to increase? Uh, and are we going to have you know even yeah. more difficulty processing? Uh, the well, backlog gets greater, the costs increase, sounds, uh, and it, it feels like we're just doing stopgap measures to try and solve that. Problem. And it sounds, Madeline, from what you're saying, as if uh, well, what's going through in the moment isn't necessarily going to be effective or humane or possibly. And so we're back to square one, really, aren't we? The, at the core of it, the biggest problem facing the UK asylum system at the moment is the backlog. Um, that um, it's very difficult to run an effective system and the costs go up um, when you have so many people still waiting for um, for a a decision on their their claim, and the government's announced you know various things to try and address this. It's increased the number of caseworkers. It's um, uh, attempting to streamline the procedure from of people coming from countries like Syria, where um, they're almost certain to be uh, given asylum anyway. So there's a question of well, why spend so much resources picking through the details of of the claim? That anyway, there's been there's separate there's a separate discussion to be had about about those policies. But um, but I think ultimately it's this sort of um, the biggest thing that the government, you know, there's lots of stuff the government would like that it doesn't really control. Like it would, it would like to deter people from coming. It would like to reduce the number of people coming in small boats. And it's very difficult for it to have a really big impact on that. The one thing it does control is the asylum processing system. Um, and, and that's probably the, therefore the lowest hanging fruit, even though it is difficult, um, uh, just trying to get people out of the backlog, um, and move on with their lives. So do you think they are perhaps delaying it all so that it, it that dissuades people from applying? If, if you if word gets around, but I mean, probably won't get around from what you were saying about the Rwanda solution. But if word gets around that, you know, don't even try Britain because you're going to be stuck there in a stuck in, on a barge in, off Weymouth for, for, for three years. Uh, people might be dissuaded and might think about going somewhere else. Do you think that is part of the, the philosophy? I mean, I can't speculate about, about what the government uh, actually intends. I mean, I suppose you're suggesting that the backlog is 
is a deliberate strategy. Um, well, it can't, I, they can't be that inefficient, surely. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't no, know. I mean, I, you know, I have no idea. I, I sort of, the, the rational part of me says I, I doubt it um, just because the costs the costs are so high that it would it would be a strange strategy, um, and you know it, it doesn't seem to have had you know at least the numbers of people claiming asylum remain high despite the fact that processing times have have been so long. Um, so, so it's not working. Yeah, um, so they might as well shorten it. In other words, well, yeah. and that is the biggest tank. The biggest from the tank. A lot of head scratching on it, Madeline. Thank you very much indeed uh, for walking us through what we do know, what we can say about this whole issue of migration. But no answers is. The, well, the, there may not be uh, answers, I think, is possibly the conclusion. But I thank you. Yeah, really good. Unfortunately, that may be the case. Yeah. Yeah. Very good to have you with us anyway. Good Thanks. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. That has to be a point. So, which starts to slow mm, down, though, surely. Mm, well, Weber. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I love the idea that it's, uh, it, it's intended confusion and intended administrative disaster in order to put people off. Well, I'm just trying to be charitable to the government. That's all. Right. I'm, I'm just trying to think they can't be that bad at their job, surely. But, you know, they, they keep on surprising well, us. Well, I was going to say the evidence tends to mount up in the opposite direction. <laughs> anyway, talking of evidence, we're mm. going to be looking at evidence that crypto is anything other than an entire scam. That's what's coming up next. Wow. Are we, are we going to provide evidence that it's not? No, I don't think so. We, 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 I don't know. we will hope to find well, evidence. Well, maybe. I don't know. Is it's a scam, but I think it's... Oh, you a, do think it's a scam. No, well, you told no, me you I, did. Well, no, I think it's a Ponzi scheme. I think well, if uh, it isn't a scam, I don't know what it is. I, I think there are people who believe that uh, if you invest in something which is li- a limited resource, mm. uh, that is scarce, and they, they think the money isn't scarce anymore because of you know, fiat currency, we can basically come and produce yeah. as much as they need, yeah. uh, then let's go back to the days of the, the gold reserve. And the, the one way of doing that is to, to invest in crypto because it's a limited resource well I think it's not only a limited resource it's also uh, fresh air nothing yes. exactly yes. <laughs> so, so I'm not sure it's <laughs> worth very much and it has gone up and it has gone down and apparently it's on the way back up but when we now, talk yeah. to you maybe it'll be down again who knows but we will dig into that yeah. on the next edition of The Y Curve brought, brought to you by Wigmore Associates we'll see you next week thanks for listening The Y Curve